few months ago, I picked up a book, a very interesting book called The Altenberg 16, an expose of the evolution industry. And I liked the way the book, it was by Susan Mazur, and I like the way the book is written because um, she's not attacking the problem from a conventional point of view. Um, you know, there's, there's the thing you hear in the media all the time, which is there's the creationists and the intelligent design people that are against evolution, and then you have the evolutionists that are for evolution, and it's this big... Uh, you know, ridiculous fight, okay? Morass. And morass. it's it's a big morass. And uh, there's a lot of heat and there's no light. And I think both sides frame the question entirely the wrong way. Um, I think they're all, they're, they're all um, um, ignoring a whole bunch of important things. And what she does in her book is she takes a completely secular point of view the book is not friendly towards creationists or intelligence design or anything, but she, but she explores the fact that there is a vacuum out there because a lot of educated scientists perfectly well understand that neo-Darwinism is coming apart at the seams and that it needs to be replaced with something and what's going to replace it. And behind the scenes, there's a lot of competition for people to come to, you know, to be the new Darwin, if you will. Um, I, for one, find evidence for evolution to be very persuasive. I just don't find the normal explanations for it to be convincing. And one of the people that Mazur interviewed in her book uh, was Lynn Margulis. Now, Lynn Margulis is Carl Sagan's ex-wife. And, uh, her son, I think his name is Darian, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, she's written books with him, and she is probably, in, in, the, in the English-speaking world, the number one advocate of the theory of symbiogenesis as a major mechanism of evolution. And I'm going to talk about that today. Now, um, this is a fairly new theory to me. Um, I, I have not researched this nearly as much as some of my other little pet, you know, theories and projects. And, um, and so what you're going to get from me is a very introductory explanation of symbiogenesis. I think in order to really do it justice, a person would need to be a cell biologist. Um, uh, and, you know, the more PhDs, the better. Uh, because it's very complex. But I'm going to give it to you in the basic outline form. And symbiogenesis is when two different organisms merge to become a single new organism. And it's a major branch within the theory of evolution. And the, um, the thing that, that, that tipped me off, that this might have a lot of substance was the fact that the theory goes back to the 1920s. Okay? I have a book here called Symbiogenesis, A New Principle Evolution by Boris Mikolaevich Kozo-Polyansky. This is a 2010 release, recent translation of a book that was written 80 years ago. Okay? And... Without tampering too much with the original material in the book, 
the translators have added pictures and photographs and, you know, electron microscope stuff and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, there's an old, there's a phrase I like, if you need a new idea, read an old book. Okay. And, and, um, and th- this is one of those old books. And so uh, symbiogenesis um, has, has been uh, around for 80 years. It's just mostly been in the Russian end of the world, and it got no attention at all in, in the Western world until the, the first, uh, Lynn Margulis published a paper in 1967, and she published a book in 1981. And when she initially started publishing this stuff, everybody thought she was crazy. But she has stuck to her guns for the last 40 years, and symbiogenesis is now widely accepted. You know, on the controversy scale, this is on the low end of controversy now. It's, it's, it's not that controversial. Um, so this is, this is a grand picture of things. Um, so, you know, the traditional Darwinian tree of life, right? You have the simple organisms and they branch into the more complex ones. You have different kind of animals. Symbiogenesis sees these as not being trees that just branch outward, but actually things that merge, they, they go out and then they merge inward and they go out and they merge inward. I was talking to my brother about this, and my my brother is a he he's a fluent speaker of Chinese. He taught English in China for several years, and he's intensely interested in languages. And he goes, you know, before you told me about this, I would have said, wow, well DNA is a lot like human language, except in human language. Um, things get passed around and they morph and they change. And, you know, words, English words go into Japanese and then, you know, they get combined and then they come back over and they, they get reused in English and, and, and so on and so forth. And, and, and now that we, we started talking about things like horizontal gene transfer, which is bacteria trading pieces of DNA with each other, and... The fact that um, that organisms merge with other organisms to create new organisms turns out, really, DNA is exactly like human language. So you already—it's uh, kind of a preview of saying you already understand this because you live in this sort of thing every day. This is just a biological version of it. So. So what you see here is fermenting bacteria and swimming bacteria merge together. And and then there's another merger of oxygen-breathing bacteria. And then those branch off into animals and fungi. And then this, there's a third merger where photosynthetic bacteria merge with these three strands and produce plants. And so this is what the endosymbiotic tree of life looks like. So um, two different organisms uh, merge and form a new organism. They exchange DNA. 
Uh, merging of genes as a result of changing environmental needs leads to the synthesis of a new organism. Uh, and one of the simplest modes of symbiogenesis is the ingestion of one organism by a host. And the ingested organism, in some cases, lives exclusively on nutrients present in the host organism. So, so uh, in one mode of operation, both organisms are reproducing independently, but they're still within the same host, and they're exchanging some genes. Uh, and the cells uh, and organisms help each other thrive. So I'm going to give you some examples. Um, this is from uh, Margulis's book, Acquiring Genomes. I think this is written in 2002 or 2003. Um, and there's a page in there that kind of summarizes the whole thing. And you can just think of it as X plus Y equals Z. Archibacteria plus eubacteria equals archaeoprotist. Archaeoprotist plus paracoccus equals protozoa. Protozoa plus cyanobacteria equals algae. And so there's kind of this Lego block mechanism of microorganisms merging together. And then you have some higher ones that form embryos. Protozoa plus Burkholderia is fungus. Algae plus yeast is plant. Protozoa plus eubacteria is animal. Now that's kind of the simple explanation right there. So here's some specific examples. Algae-eating ancestors of the modern-day sea slug fed on the seaweed codium. Chloroplast cells of the seaweed, which convert sunlight to nutrients, which is photosynthesis in the algae, were ingested and integrated into the digestive system. And now, the sea slug never eats during its adult life, Instead, it obtains carbohydrate-rich molecules from sunlight. And it's through the algae, it's, it's through the chloroplast cells of the seaweed. And now they reproduce inside the sea slug without ever having to um, go back to being seaweed. Very interesting. Lichen. They're probably saying this is an experimentally verified fact. Well, what this is, is this is, they look at the components. They, they, look, they look at the, that, the, that the algae inside this organism, and they're nearly identical to the seaweed cells. This theory is based on looking at very, very similar things. It's sort of like looking at a Toyota Camry and a Lexus and going, hey, these both have identical parts. They, some of these parts must have came from the same factory. This is, this is how this... So this, this is inferred much more than it is observed. Okay. Lichen, 
It's formed by the fusion of algae and fungal genes. So uh, fungus and green algae merge together to create lichen, and the formation of lichens has helped it survive in environments where neither uh, fungi nor algae can survive alone. And, uh, I mean, this is, um, to a person who studies these three things, it's, it's almost too obvious to miss. Um, Buchnera, aphidicola, this is a, this is a bacteria that's found in aphids, which were once free-living organisms. During the process of evolution, these merge with the aphids, and are located in specialized cells called bacteriocytes. The bacteria provide the aphids with amino acids, while the aphids feed on plants to provide carbohydrates to the bacteria. And so, the essence of symbiogenesis is that these are no longer free-living organisms. Their existence is now completely intertwined with the host. They can't be separated. Um, glycocystophytes, algae believed to have evolved through symbiogenesis. They emerge through um, a merger between a non-photosynthetic eukaryote and a cyanobacterium. And the organism contains obtains chloroplast cells from the cyanobacteria, which is essential for photosynthesis. So this here's the chloroplast cell here, which originally was a cyanobacteria. And so now it can do photosynthesis where previously um, the the uh, this this could not um, do photosynthesis. Um, protozoa is made up of RK, which is the oldest, simplest life forms, with combined with Paracoccus. You put those together, and you get a protozoa. What do you mean by put them together? Okay. Find their genes. Well, okay, so um, now I might we might have to we might have to look in one of these books and get the exact description. Um, let me go let me go back to this. So this is basically a cell inside a cell. And then this is this is missing some of the genes that its cousin that lives outside does have. Like most of the genes are the same, but some of the genes that control, um, that, that can, say can, can, uh, can use oxygen, for example, are not there. Well, they wouldn't need them because they don't get exposed to oxygen. They're on the inside of a cell. And likewise, this is missing things that originally were in here. You know, and so this is this is 
looking at a at a mechanism and seeing its component parts present outside with modification. Um, symbiosis between the protozoa and the synecococcus results results in algae which can do photosynthesis. So this is a symbiogenesis between protozoa and bacteria. But all this stuff is inferred. Um, as far as I know. I'm, I'm not aware that they have seen this happen. Okay? It's that well, it's, it's like the Lexus and the, and the Camry. Like, well, look at all of these identical parts. And, and so the mystery is, if you don't know um, about the parent company in Japan, um, you, have, you have the Lexus and you have uh, the Camry and you look at them and you go, hmm, one must have evolved from the other somehow um, with some intermediate forms because they're so similar. Or maybe you say, gee, they alternator, which looks not like an alternator over here, except for it's missing some parts it doesn't need because of some reason. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore you assume that it uh, captured an alternator and, and whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's essentially what they're doing. Um, and um, they're, they're probably correct in observing the similarities. The question is the interpretation from that um, is, is heavily laden with some presuppositions. Sure. Well, so, and, and, you might or might not. You're, and, presenting the, you're presenting the view at this point, so so that's cool. Right. Well, so so what are the presuppositions? The the presuppositions are that if we if we can infer some common ancestry or some merger, rather than things appearing brand new and intact, that's a more parsimonious theory. From a, from a science laboratory point of view, as opposed to assuming, okay, you know, God made a cyanobacteria, God made one of these, oh, and God made another version of these merged together. If you were using the phrase, it was more politically correct, I, I, would, I, okay. would, I would agree with that. Well, it's also more testable, because this is well, an in principle testable. How is it testable? How can you tell... How it came to be that these are similar. Be, well, because I, I that they are similar. I'm going I'm gonna guess that you could create conditions where it would happen again. That is a testable hypothesis. Can we create conditions yes, yes. where these would merge together? Right. And and I'm gonna take a position that's a, an entirely testable hypothesis. And probably someone will prove it out. And they may have already done it. I've only been studying this for a month or two, so I'm you know, not well-versed. Yes, sir. Or show that how it can't be these, done. How long do these origins exist in the fossil problem? Can you solve before they emerge? Oh, well, th this goes back... Uh, Margulis makes a point of this. She, she says... Um, this book is kind of funny. Um, without naming any names, she really takes a good swing at Richard Dawkins in this book. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, here, I'll read you a couple things. It's fairly appropriate because Richard Dawkins is deep enough that he knows more than he's talking. Uh, yeah. Well, she says, most discussion of evolution is at the level of zoology in animals. And she goes... Everybody ignores the fact that 99% of the organisms in the world are microorganisms. And, like, all these people sort of act as though evolution started 500 million years ago. It's like, you know, you got a couple billion years before that, and we do have fossils, and we do have, um, we do have um, um, data to support this. And so... So th- there's there's a lot of data that feeds into this. So yeah, it's fun, it's fine to be skeptical of this, but but here's my question: Why? What good? This is a highly organized process. This is not random. This is not accidental. She spends a whole couple pages talking about how the random mutation theory is the most overblown thing in the history of science. Why object to this? Well, the point is, if it's not random that the pieces of existed, why presuppose that they're coming together was random? Well, I think they're seeking each other out. Okay, so the program is seeking. Okay, go ahead. Okay, a major plank of Margulis's um, platform is that evolution is a cooperative process, not a competitive process. That Darwinism frames everything in terms of survival of the fittest. Right, She's like, no, 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 no. Animals and organisms cooperate with each other on all kinds of levels. And this is a perfect example. That, that microorganisms find their homes and they eventually become integrated in larger organisms. And it's extremely cooperative. Maybe we got to also keep the perspective. If we, if we were sitting and listening to you, you sound like, well, a standard evolutionist in some ways. Which is fine. Which, which you're coming from is saying that this is evidence of design, that when we look at the whole process there, you can't ignore that this is not a, a naturalistic, totally a naturalistic process. But there may be, well, let me rephrase, there may be naturalistic processes involved here, but the whole thing, the ways it comes together, has to be done from uh, the big picture. There is a big picture framework of order and cooperation and structure that is completely antithetical that, to the Darwinian assumptions of randomness and purposelessness, this turns the whole thing on its head. The ecosystem strives to fulfill God's command of let there be life. Yeah. Yeah, fill the earth with every, fill every ecological niche with everything you can possibly fill it with in every way that you can, yes. So your automobile example, you might want to use the example of the Pontiac Vibe and I believe its compatriot is a Honda, and they both use the same parts, a bunch of them, mm. and they are combining the Americans and the Russian, the, the Japanese. Yeah. And 
by golly, they do just exactly what you're saying. Right. Right. By design. Right. And 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 I hope y'all recognize, and we'll get to this more later, that we see this happening all the time, everywhere. We do all this kind of stuff all the time. Um. Fungus, plant. Symbiosis between algae and yeast is theorized to be the first embryo forming stage in the evolution process. So this gave rise to the bryophyte or the tracheophyte. Um, the formation of animals has been suggested to have been a symbiotic relationship between protozoa and carbonate precipitating eubacteria or other similar species. Result, so a protozoa plus a eubacteria creates a parazoa, such as a sponge. And a sponge is an animal. So, so, so the, the theory of how does a single cell organism become animals is this organism develops, and this organism develops, and then... A merger between the two creates something new, and that creates a strand of life, and then that merges with some other things, and that merges with some other things. And again, isn't that exactly how technology, product design, automobile design, is it's, it's this leapfrog of taking things that have been created independently and incorporating them and putting them to use. Did she talk about Haluka, the last common ancestor then that is so big in evolution? Last common ancestor of what? Her cell. Well, um, does she, does she the, theorize what that might well, be? Well, origin of life. Or is that separate? She, origin of life, she just says. Well, we don't really know where that came from, but anybody who understands chemistry knows that we kind of know. It's kind of this hand-waving thing. Okay. And I'm not going to defend her on that because I think it's ridiculous. There's another example that comes to mind. You say they merge. Mm -hmm. uh, you try to merge a donkey and a horse, and you get a mule, but you don't get two mules to produce another mule. Oh, yeah, well, there's all kinds of versions of this so, that don't work. Precisely. But there are some versions that do. Can you name one of the bigger animals that do? Well, you're asking the wrong guy, okay? You're the but, creature. Well, I'm, I, th I okay. think this is a good theory. You're, you're and, saying, no, you can't right now. Well, I, th I think I'm showing you examples of this. Like I think, I think she's right. Would that work? Yeah, beefalo yeah. works. Are they are they fertile? Emerge? I don't. You know, Shapiro, Shapiro, James Shapiro gave a talk um, in January, and he talked about successful crossings of different species. It does happen. Oh, mules happen. Yeah. Well, there's also but some that are self propagate but there's some that are fertile. And again, okay. I know they're out there. You okay. you go look, you'll find them. Promise you, you'll so find. Some them. have suggested that the right definitions for species ought to, ought to include whether or not it's fertile. So well, sure, sure, okay. Um, sponge, okay. So in the endosymbiosis proposes that basic structures of cells of different organisms 
combine to become one. New organism retains the functions or most of the functions of both ancestors. Organism adapts as a single unit to the new environment. Um, and and the, the, the symbiotic creature has capabilities that neither one had by itself. And so it can survive in places that otherwise couldn't. Now, here's, a, here's an example of symbiogenesis in business. It's a Starbucks inside of a Target. <laughs> they use the same concrete floor. They use the same electricity. They use the same plumbing. They pay the same utility bills. Um, they depend on the same customers. But it's a different business inside a larger business. And they do have a symbiotic relationship, right? How about in language, the word alchemy? The al comes from Arabic, and kemaya comes from chemistry, which is Greek. And you take an Arabic word and a Greek word, and you merge them together, and you make an English word called alchemy. And the whole dictionary is full of examples like this. Okay? Symbiogenesis. Symbiogenesis and advertising. This is an article from today's New York Times website. Okay? Is the New York Times a business? Okay, here's an advertisement for investing in gold coins. This is a separate business from the New York Times, but they are on the New York Times webpage. They are paying the New York Times to be there. Symbiotic relationship. How about the symbiotic relationship here between the New York Times.com and LinkedIn? Okay, you got pieces of one business inside another business. How about this? Safari. Microsoft Internet Explorer in a Mac. Mortal enemies cooperating. Right? All the time. All the time. Um, you know, how about when, uh, how about when Johnny Cash sings a Nine Inch Nails song? Now, I, I, I want to make a contrast. I mean, symbiogenesis is, is this incredibly elegant and sophisticated merger where two things merge together. They they share genes. Some unnecessary genes are deleted. Unnecessary functions are discarded. And necessary stuff is kept. And they're more competitive together than they were apart. It's extremely orderly. And compare that to the Dick and Jane version of evolution that says species evolved by random copying errors of DNA filtered by natural selection. Okay, and so you, you go to the bookstore, like Dawkins' book, Greatest Show on Earth, does not even have the word symbiogenesis in it. It, it also doesn't have the word transposition in it. You know, that's a Nobel Prize winning discovery that has everything to do with evolution, and they won't talk about it. Why won't they talk about it? Because it sounds too much like design. Um, I would like you to consider that a more complete theory of evolution you take symbiogenesis and you combine it with horizontal gene transfer, which is 
bacteria and, and, and small organisms exchanging DNA with each other. <laughs> Epigenetics, which is the fact that, that um, genes can be switched on and off based on environment and behavior and passed on to offspring. Natural genetic engineering, which is that entire genomes can be rearranged uh, by organisms under stress. Genome doubling, which is a well-supported theory that, that a, spe- a new species can emerge in one generation by DNA doubling and changing some genes, and now you have twice as much hard drive space and a whole bunch of new capabilities. Uh, the golden ratio checksum matrix, which I talked about a little bit last time, which is a uh, the golden ratio and the Fibonacci sequence actually become a mechanism by which changes in DNA uh, are governed and it prevents errors and detects errors. And I have some my own thing, I call it the Swiss Army Knife, which is the idea that an organism has an ability to, to say, we're in distress, this isn't working, let's try this, let's try, let's try pause, let's try claws, let's try hair, let's try scales, let's try a longer neck, let's try a shorter neck. And that this is accomplished through all of these other mechanisms. Now, um, I gotta keep rolling here because I got part two. Make a yeah, go, go right ahead. I think of Jeff Smirnick when he talks about the multiverse. Yeah. And he says we should not be afraid about the multiverse because when you start looking at the multiverse, you know, there's very little evidence or even a multiverse at all. Um, but all the things that they point out, he's saying it's totally designed. It's totally, it's not through naturalistic mechanisms right. at all. And, and these are the sort of current things that's being talked about in the evolutionary world, looking for some kind of evolutionary mechanism, and I've heard Paul Rana even talk about a lot of these things, and says, we got to remember that this is not just happening naturalistically, but this is happening uh, through the design of the Creator. Yeah, I think, I think any theory that invokes a systematic process that can be studied, reproduced, repeated, should go on the table. Because this is about identifying systematic processes in nature. I think the highest view of God as a designer that we can have would be, wow, how did God create one single organism that could evolve into everything that fills the earth without him having to tamper with it? That's unbelievable. That's a very high view of God. 